You're listening to Foreseeable, a production of Global is Asian, the flagship digital platform of Singapore's Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. Each episode, we invite an expert for a conversation relating to their field of study or experience and to find out what they foresee happening in the future. Thirsty Cities, Social Contracts and Public Goods Provision in China and India is a book written with one overarching, broad puzzle in mind. While most studies show that democracies produce more public goods than authoritarian ones, why does authoritarian China produce more public goods than democratic India? The book's author is Selina Ho, assistant professor at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. She specializes in Chinese politics and foreign policy, with a focus on the politics of water and infrastructure. I asked her why she decided to write this book. I'm born and raised as a Singaporean. I have two particular interests. One is in water issues and the other is, of course, China. Water being an issue that is very close to the heart of a Singaporean, Singapore being a land-scarce city, we have a lot of rainfall, but not enough land to catch the rainfall. So we are water-scarce in a sense. So water is an issue that almost every Singaporean growing up is very sensitive to. And since young, I've always been fascinated with China. China is our largest neighbor, is the hegemon in Asia. It's actually known as the water hegemon in Asia, in a sense. Most of the most important rivers flowing through Asia actually comes from Tibet in China. So when I wrote this book, I'm really interested in combining both. But as I was uh, reading it, and I was thinking that, you know, India is also one of the largest neighbors, and India is a very, very interesting and fascinating country. I thought that, you know, why don't I compare public goods provision, and specifically the urban water sector, meaning the drinking water uh, provision in the city areas, as comparison between the two and try and explain why China is able to produce more public goods than India. Just describe the differences in service, how much better or worse the delivery of water to these urban areas is. In the big cities, even in places like Delhi and Hyderabad, well, both cities don't have uh, 24-7 tap water. Okay, Middle-class folks generally end up acquiring storage systems and filtration systems for their own home. But if you turn on the tap, uh, it's not 24-7. Uh, usually it's about two to three hours a day. That's all the amount of water they get from the taps. So a lot of the middle-class folks will store water, filtrate them, and clean them themselves. But the, the poor ones will have to go to the water stands, the water pumps, and try and pump water. And the other solution is to wait for the water mafia. Now, the water mafia are those guys who actually come in big tanks, big water tanks to sell water. Okay. And the people who actually get to buy these water because they are priced pretty high, commercial places like hotels, and also the rich and the middle class. So depriving the poor of having access to clean water again, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the water mafia phenomenon is very interesting. It started off as the public utilities providing these water tanks, but it became privatized over time, meaning that a mafia actually formed controlling sources of this water. And they do things like siphoning off water from public pipelines. So this is what happens in, you know, in places like Delhi and Hyderabad and a lot of the big cities in uh, India. Now in China, obviously, tier one cities for sure, Beijing and Shenzhen, when you turn on the tap, the water is clean and filtrated. People boil water out of habit more than anything else. You can see very clearly that they are able to produce a high level of water 
piped into households. And these water are usually okay in, t- in terms of quality. What is the common perception that people have about regimes and the provision of public goods? One of the most common and uh, conventional wisdom is that regime types matter. And I think that regime types do matter, but they do only matter to a certain extent. So what do these studies say? They are actually large-scale studies of democracies and authoritarian systems. And some of these studies tend to show that democracies produce higher levels of public goods. And the reasoning behind this is that democracies need to win elections. So in other words, they need to appeal to the larger citizenship, but authoritarian governments are usually seen as those who are only interested in keeping a small group in place, in power. But there are problems with this kind of explanations because there are democracies that do not produce a high level of public goods. Countries like Latin America and India are democracies which actually produce a low level of public goods. And then you have authoritarian systems like the monarchies, right, in the Gulf states, the Gulf monarchies. They actually have a very high level of public goods provision. So the question is why? I mean, these countries are examples which contradict all these large-scale studies uh, that look at, you know, just democracies and the authoritarian systems to say that democracies produce more public goods than authoritarian systems. And that, that is not entirely true. And there are always all these other explanations as well, which is that in particular for China and India, the argument has been about China being wealthier, that it had higher level of public goods as a result of higher level economic development and higher state capacity as well. But this is not essentially true in the sense that higher level of GDP growth can lead to higher levels of income inequalities at the same time meaning that the ability to redistribute public goods is about redistribution, uh, can be very low. High level of GDP does not mean equally good high level of redistribution. And uh, also elites may decide to accumulate some of these wealth for themselves rather than to redistribute, right? Right. It's not a determining factor, the level of economic growth. And the other one is state capacity. State capacity is not just about the ability to redistribute, but it's also the ability to extract resources from society, like things like taxes. Mm-hmm. Now, in Africa, you have all these predatory states that ha- have high extractive capacities. So you can say that they have high state capacity, especially in the area of extraction, but obviously they don't have high levels of public goods. So all these statements suggest that some of these existing explanations, conventional wisdoms, are flawed. What explanation did you come up with after examining it? So when I look at all these explanations, the focus is on uh, material things, right? Like political systems, economic power, wealth. But how about things that are non-material, that could be equally, if not more important, such as norms and values, ethics and morality? Because governance is not just about material power or capability, Governance is also driven by an underlying set of values, norms, and principles. So I thought we should go back to the basics. What are the role of leaders, right? What are they concerned about? What do people expect from the government? There are two things here. It is about the legitimacy of a government. If you want to stay in power, you have to be legitimate. What do you need to do to have legitimacy? And what is it that people expect from their government? So when you look at these two, these two things, legitimacy of a government and the expectations from the people, you actually have what is essentially a social contract. 
that forms the twin elements of a social contract. And nowadays, we have people talking about social contracts, especially what is happening in the world today. All the troubles that's, that are around the world and people saying that the social contract is broken, that a social contract between the government and the people is weakened and broken and we need a social contract, right? Mm-hmm. But what actually is a social contract and how does it work? I don't think anybody right. has tried to define it or try to understand this relationship, right? In trying to ans- answer this question, why does authority in China produce more public goods than democratic India? I said, let's look at how a social contract actually functions. How does it work? So this is what the book is about. It is about how does a social contract work? And I mm-hmm. use China and India as, as comparisons for this to happen. Okay. And then how do you describe each of their social contracts that they have and, and what's the difference between them? Okay, so let me just start by saying what is a social contract first. I defined it as a set of relationship between the state and society in which legitimacy of the government corresponds with the expectations of the people and uh, they usually align. That's what the traditional political philosophers like people like uh, Locke, Rousseau, Hobbes mm-hmm. have talked about social right. contracts, right? But I went more, I went beyond that. I talk about a social contract being an informal institution. What is an informal institution? Informal institution, it is not explicit. It's usually not written or binding, okay? But he behaves as, as an institution in the sense that if you do not abide by the rules, by the institutions, then there is a chance that you might actually be thrown out of power, okay? You might either through, you know, losing elections or uh, you may be purged or overthrown in some other more violent, violent ways. Mm-hmm. So in other words, social contract acts as an informal institution uh, because it constrains and enables governments to be able to accomplish certain tasks. Right. So what is the difference then between the Chinese and Indian social contract? Um, the Chinese contract is what I would call a performance-based one, not just in the material sense, but also in the normative sense. There's the idea of the mandate of heaven. Mandate of heaven is rooted in China's imperial history but it is still relevant today because we can see it whenever there is a big earthquake, for example, the Sichuan earthquake or going further back, um, the Tangshan earthquake in the 1970s, people will say, oh, the CCP has lost, the Chinese Communist Party has lost the mandate of heaven. Mm -hmm. And we know that the government still cares about the mandate of heaven, you know, the normative part of what they are supposed to do. Chinese officials are traditionally and even now regarded as playing a very critical role in providing for the welfare of the people, in providing for the well-being of the people. Hence, mm-hmm. the focus on things like anti-corruption. Okay. That has been a constant theme to our, and the delivery of public goods to look after the well-being of the people. So that is the social contract. That leads to creations of strong and independent institutions for the provision of public goods. And we see this in examples in my book, in the urban water sector, in the cities, provision of drinking water to residents. In the case of the Indian social contract, I described it as a socialist and populist social contract. Socialist because it started from Nehru, in a sense. Mm -hmm. Nehru was a socialist. He believed in socialism, and he tried to institute that when when India became independent. And what is socialism? Essentially, if it focuses on uh, central planning and the nationalization of, of uh, vital industries. But another one is that they're supposed to provide for the welfare, social welfare. But social welfare is really hard to come about 
And in that sense, they kind of failed in the, in the social welfare part. But the nationalization of vital industries, they actually succeeded to the extent that when India tried to liberalize in the 1990s, they were very slow. Private sector participation is something that they are very reluctant to embrace uh, even to this day. Now, the other part of the Indian social contract is populism. Why is it that I say populism and not democracy? Well, India is the largest democracy in the whole world, but it is a form of democracy where universal suffrage actually came about before there was industrialization. Now, when that happens, uh, universal suffrage, meaning that everyone gets to vote, so what happens is that society has not um, developed to the extent where, you know, that, that is an industrial society. So the traditional patronage networks that exist in the countryside, in the rural areas, all were floated up from each level of elections right up to the national level. So the traditional patronage system is brought into the national level. As a result of which, you see a lot of populism and this traditional patronage where politicians appeal to the voters promising free water, free electricity. All these means that institutions that provide public goods in in India has become circumscribed. You can't really be producing for the general citizenship when you are providing for your own networks and your own groups, right? So as a result of the social contract in India, institutions in India is weak in responding to the needs for public goods. Can social contracts like these change over time? Can they be changed? And, uh, you know, how does that understanding, how can that be used by policymakers? As I was writing this book, I, I became very troubled because I don't want to think that, you know, social contracts, once it's set and cast in stone, means that you can't change and therefore people and countries are doomed to a certain path. In a sense, that's cultural determinism. And there's something wrong with that kind of idea. So when I look into the literature on institutional change, how can institutions change? A few things jumped up. One is that they can change, but very slowly and with time. And the other condition is that you need leaders with really good skills and the political will to suffer some cost to themselves and to their political standing in order to change a social contract. And uh, the third condition is that social contracts must fit the context of the country. It cannot be a set of values or systems, norms that do not fit into the context of the country. So it can change. And when politicians and policymakers know this, they need to be mindful of this agreement that they have with the people. And if you want to have a higher level of public goods to improve the lives of people, then you need to do certain things. Essentially, I think there are about mm, three or four things that you need to do. First, governments nowadays need to understand what it is that people really want. Okay. How have people's expectations changed? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm, the problems of globalization, uh, the problems that come with income inequalities, what do people actually want from their government now? Is it more the same or have all these expectations changed? So governments need to understand accurately what it is that the, their people want. Mm-hmm. Number two, they have to ask themselves, how do I fulfill these expectations so that I remain as relevant and legitimate? But also more importantly, how do I fulfill my moral duty as, as, as a leader of a country? Okay. Governance is really not just about material things, but it's also about having a moral duty. And the third point is that sometimes the government needs to suffer some cost. If you really want to improve the lives of the people 
And if that's what people mostly want, I would imagine, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you must have the political will to adjust the social contract. Let me give you the example of, of India, right? A lot of the politicians in my case studies on the book, I have four case studies, two of them in China, Beijing and Shenzhen, and two of them in India, uh, Hyderabad and Delhi. Now, in the periods that I studied these four cities, in Delhi and Hyderabad, you have all these key state leaders, Sheila Dixit and Chandra Baba Naidu. Both of them, through various means, try to carry out economic reforms to improve the lives of the people. But some of these reforms are very controversial. It means that you cannot do things like free water, free electricity which is what a lot of Indian politicians promised during electoral times. Okay. And, and so you need actually the political will to adjust uh, the social contract. And, and they, these two actually suffer costs in the end. Sometimes they have to roll back um, their policies and uh, they were eventually thrown out of power. But what I'm saying is that there are costs to it and there must be political will. Uh, you must frame the narratives. Framing uh, the government, fam- framing the narratives is important. Understanding that strong institutions are important as well as having a strong society. So strong, strong state, strong society, that would help to ensure public goods provision. Do you foresee the provision of uh, public goods and particularly water improving in India at all? Do you have any, any reason so, to be optimistic? No, so it, it's, it's really, if, if India continues on this track right now and with COVID-19, I think the situation is, is really bad. I was hopeful that when Modi came into power, that he would do things that would benefit India as a whole because he did really well in governing his home state in Gujarat. But the steps that Modi take in trying to transform the economy actually end up giving a lot of hardships to the people. There were not significant improvements in, in public goods provision. He was populist. He used religion for a lot of his purposes. I don't see any substantial improvement in the way that he dealt with public goods. You know, let me give you some examples, right? On the nationwide level, the performance of the water sector actually deteriorated through the years. So they are very far away from meeting what is known as the uh, Government of India water service level benchmarks. It's really extremely difficult uh, for them. I think you need to have really good leaders in India who are willing to give up on the populist route and to clearly focus on the social welfare part of their social contract. Okay, thank you very much. If you'd like to subscribe to the Globaliz Asian newsletter, look for the link in the description or find us on Facebook at Global is Asian. Global is Asian.